I want to tell you a little bit about this last week at the Shelley home. So my youngest son is playing baseball right now. So he had two baseball games this week, and both mornings he woke up thinking about how his team could win. What would his team need to do to beat the other team? My middle child, who's in high school, uh, is a part of a one-act play at her school. And they traveled to a regional competition. They took their one-act play, along with eight other schools, eight other schools sent a group from their drama department to perform their one-act play. And I know what you're thinking. That's art. That's subjective. But no, there must be a winner. So the nine teams were ranked, and then three of those nine teams were ranked as best, and they moved on in the competition closer to state. And my oldest child, who is a freshman in college, we had a discussion about the importance of grade point, how to calculate your grade point, the importance of a good grade point, especially if you wanted to want to get into graduate school, you need to be thinking about how to beat other people into graduate school. So that's our week, and I thought I would bring to you a scripture passage about a little prayer competition. This is a parable that you will find in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. It's a story that Jesus told. Jesus said this, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I have a couple of memories from my earliest years in worship, sitting with my parents in in the sanctuary of the Methodist church where they worshiped, And my memories are very visual. I remember what I could see as I sat and watched my parents worship. I I spent uh, most of those Sunday mornings sitting next to my mother in a pew. So I was looking at what was immediately before me. Pieces of paper in the pew racks that were there. Bulletins sitting on the pew cushions next to me. Tiny little pencils. Sanctuaries always have those tiny little pencils. And then my mother's hands. I spent a lot of time studying my mother's hands during those Sunday morning hours and looking at her rings and fiddling with her rings. But then when the old German man who served as our senior pastor began to pray, my field of vision would extend from what was immediately in front of me to the people who were sitting around me or behind me. And what I was interested in as a child, and Dr. Lutrick was praying, I was interested in seeing who had their eyes closed while he was praying. Because in my mind, those were the people that were winning the prayer competition. They were really praying. This parable 
that Jesus puts before those who are following him on the road to Jerusalem presents two different people with two different prayers. And so while we are on a journey to Easter, we pause this morning to consider both those men and both their prayers. So first, consider the Pharisee in this parable. We've talked a lot about Pharisees in here, including last week. We talked about a parable with a Pharisee in it. And I want to urge you, as you consider this small parable in Luke 18, not to typecast the Pharisee, because this Pharisee, he's a really good guy. He's highly regarded in the community. He's very careful and honest in his attempts to obey God's ways. He gives one-tenth of all that he has for the poor. And the word all in the scripture passage is important because it tells us that he gives even more than is required. Some of what he has acquired would be from other people. Like say um, he's acquired some uh, produce from another farmer's field that that would have already been tithed upon by that farmer But what the Pharisee is saying, I tithe one-tenth of all that I have, even if it's already been tithed upon. I tithe on it again. So he is giving more than he has to give. He prays and he fasts regularly and he keeps himself clean. And this is in contrast to adulterers, to thieves, to even tax collectors that he mentions. So let's consider the tax collector The tax collector is not Joe, the good-hearted bartender. The tax collector in this parable is a dishonorable guy. He has bid and purchased the right to collect taxes on a particular region. And there are, in that particular time, a lot of taxes to collect. So there are poll taxes, there are land taxes, there are toll charges on travel There's taxes on transportation of goods, there's sale taxes, there's inheritance taxes. It probably all sounds very familiar to you, especially at this time of year, right? (laughs) But this guy is not working for a salary. No, he's extorting people for even more than is owed because what he raises beyond the contract that he has with the Roman government is his personal profit. That's where he gets his money. And the tax collector in this parable is a traitor because he's sitting at the temple, so we know that he's Jewish. So uh, he's working for the foreign government, the Romans, and the Romans are oppressing his people. He's made himself a part of the system that everyone at that time is hoping a Messiah will come and deliver them from. Leviticus says that someone who extorts their neighbor can indeed make restitution by returning what they took to the person, plus giving an additional 20% along with making an offering to the priest. So the bottom line in this parable of this tax collector who is extorting other Jewish people is that he is in a hopeless situation. He could never know everyone that he has wronged, and if he did, he couldn't pay back all that he's owed. 
There's no way he could do that. This guy, this guy is in deep. I had a conversation with a friend this week about which would be preferable in ministries of the church. Would resuscitation be better or would resurrection be better? We both initially said, well, resuscitation, of course, because that's just easier. Nothing has to die to resuscitate it. There's really no grief to admit to. All that is required is just a little push of that ministry, right? A little energy behind that place or that program. And then there's something just very easy to control about that. It's within our control to resuscitate a program or a ministry in the church. But on the other hand, there is something very powerful about watching a completely hopeless situation come back to life and take some steps and gain some traction. It's not easy because there is pain to be owned and there's grief to be experienced. There has to be a death. There has to be hopelessness for there to be resurrection. But yet it is the experiential way when we see a place that is hopeless, whether within the church or outside of the church, it is the experiential way that we live out the great truth of our faith. New Testament professor Klein Snodgrass, that's really his name. It's good that he thinks well, (laughs) said that when he looks at this parable, He sees a way to organize the parable that's helpful. And this is the way that he sees in this parable. Look at this parable and see that the Pharisee has a quick approach and a long prayer. And the tax collector has a long approach and a short prayer. So one has a very short description of their approach to prayer, of their posture. And the other has a longer approach a longer description of their posture. So there are three things in the long description of the posture I want you to see. And that's the posture of the tax collector. So let's look at the posture of the tax collector. The first thing that I want you to hear about the tax collector as he approaches his prayer is that he stands far off. The second thing that I want you to see is that he doesn't even look up to heaven. And looking up to heaven is a perfectly fine way to pray. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help is in the name of the Lord, right? So lifting your eyes up is a perfectly fine way to pray, but he doesn't lift his eyes up. And then the third thing about his posture is that we see that he is beating his breast. And to beat your breast is a sign of repentance. So there is one other place In Luke's gospel, where this sign of repentance, where this phrase, beating your breast, is found. And it's in the 23rd chapter of the gospel of Luke. I want you to hear these words. This is at the cross. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, 
he praised God and he said, certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. But all his acquaintances, including the women who followed him from Galilee, they stood at a distance watching these things. So I didn't read this anywhere, and I can't find a scholar to corroborate it. But I believe that the tax collector's stance, the tax collector's posture, is supposed to take us right here, right here to the cross. Because two of the three qualities of his posture are found in this passage. They beat their breasts. They stand at a distance. Maybe it is. Could it possibly be true that the tax collector is not looking up because he's looking at the cross? Because this is where his salvation lies. Not too long ago, I bought myself a strand of Anglican prayer beads. (laughs) As near as I can tell, it's just a shorter strand of beads than a rosary. Uh, The prayer that was suggested to me for each of the smaller beads on the Anglican uh, prayer beads, um, and so there are 28 on this short strand of beads, is that every time I come across a short or a small bead, I'm supposed to pray, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I was also taught that an alternate way of praying would be to say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, I'm human. Have mercy on me, I'm not perfect. When we were um, praying before the service, the worship team was praying uh, about 9.20 this morning. Brent's prayer actually began with, Oh, God, have mercy on me. I'm a goofball. (laughs) Same thing, right? (laughs) Have mercy on me. You are perfect. I am in need. There is something about that simple prayer, have mercy on me, a sinner, that eases a burden. It eases a burden of responsibility. It eases a burden of hopelessness. Well, consider the approach of the Pharisee. We've talked about the approach of the tax collector. Let's look at the prayer stance of the Pharisee. The scripture says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing by himself. Standing by himself. Spiritually, I believe this is a very risky, dangerous posture. I keep going back to a passage I read early in the week from a book called The Divine Dance, which says, when we are isolated, we become unquestioned masters of our own shrinking kingdom. Empathy starves in these hermetically sealed containers of self, and goodness goes there to die. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a place where empathy starves or goodness goes to die. And I don't want to facilitate that kind of place here in worship either. I have no interest 
in creating free agents of Christianity and fostering that atmosphere of independence and isolation. This drives me to remain in a church. For all its frustration, I believe it has a lot to offer us. And it's my desire that the church that I'm a part of exists within a larger connection. In the case of this church, it's a larger denomination. And it's not for the bureaucracy that I'm in it for. It is instead for the connection. I believe that the connection is worth the cost of the bureaucracy. There was a recent article. I think it's, an, it's supposed to be an article for the month of April in the Atlantic that suggests that in the United States, religious non-attendance has led to a greater intolerance for one another or a narrow-mindedness in our community. So these are believers who don't go to church, religious non-attenders. The article has some interesting thoughts about what's going on in American culture as we are fleeing organized religion. In 1992, so that's many years ago, that's when I graduated from college, 6% of the American population rejected affiliating with any any congregation in the United States. Today, the percentage is 22% of people. And among millennials, the percentage is 35% believers who don't go to church. So while this is a popular stance in our culture, it's also a very difficult stance. This is what the article says about believers who don't go to church. This is a group that has difficulty holding down jobs, getting and staying married, and otherwise forging real and abiding ties in their community. And here's what doesn't matter about that group. It doesn't matter what your race is, and it doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. Those things hold true. The attitude of, I can do it myself, I'm independent, or I already know things you don't have any right or any reason to teach me might be popular. It might be admirable. But I want you to know spiritually it's not helpful. And it's not good for us. We are made for community. And a defining characteristic of Christian salvation is relationship. And we need to walk out relationship, practice relationship. Consider the prayer of the Pharisee. The prayer of the Pharisee is a modification. It's actually an okay prayer. It's a modification of a rabbinical prayer. Rabbis actually prayed this. I thank you, Lord, that I am not. I thank you, Lord, that I am not a heathen. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a woman. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a brute. But there are a few key elements that are left out of this Pharisee's prayer. What's left out is an appreciation for who God is and who the neighbor is. What's left out is the Shema as we recite it when we worship together. It's a love for God and a love for neighbor. The translation that uh, we read this morning concludes with this verse that I think is confusing. I want to change this translation, and I was able to find a place where I could change it. Here's the word that's confusing for this whole parable. Rather, rather than is the phrase. I tell you that this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. 
An alternate translation says this. I tell you that this man went down to his home justified alongside the other. I like this because it suggests the great leveling out that is brought out in the final part of the verse. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. In the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke tells us about John the Baptist as an adult who is doing Isaiah 40 in his ministry. So what John the Baptist is doing is that he is preparing the way of the Lord. He's making paths straight and every valley is going to be filled in and every mountain and hill will be brought low. There is a great leveling out that is happening with the coming of the Lord. In this parable, on the road to Jerusalem, I would suggest to you that in the Pharisee, we have a mountain that is brought low, and in the tax collector, we have a valley that is filled in. I bought a book this week, and I added it to one of the stacks of books that I have right now in my office at home and here at the church. I put it towards the bottom so that I... I, was trying not to read it, but it had like this magnetic force to it. So I picked it up on Friday and I I started reading it. The book is called The Book of Joy. And The Book of Joy is about a week in April of 2015 where um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama met for a week on the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday. In the book, they offer eight ways to get to joy Eight pillars of joy. And the second pillar of joy is, in fact, humility. The Dalai Lama tells a story from 1954 about a visit that he had with the Indian ambassador. And Chinese officials were also a part of this meeting. And he said that this meeting in 1954 was a very formal occasion. It was very serious. And everyone in the room was very reserved, and they sat up straight and tall, and they were quiet. And then somehow, a bowl of fruit toppled over, and then everyone in the whole room got down from the chairs where they were seated, and they shuffled along the floor, they crawled along the floor on their knees to chase and pick up fruit. And he said, in that moment, the truth of humility was evident. We were no longer pretending to be something that we were not, but instead we were all normal human beings. So he said that as a consequence, when he finds himself in formal meetings, which happens very often, he is often wishing that something will go wrong. (laughs) Something will go wrong so that the truth will be revealed in the room. Desmond Tutu told the story about three bishops standing before the altar of a church, beating their breasts saying that before God they were nothing. When a lowly acolyte came up to the altar, stood beside them, started beating his chest and professing that he was nothing, then one of the bishops elbowed another and said, look who thinks he's nothing. Even the church doesn't get humility right most of the time. Both men agreed. Both the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu agreed that the place that the places where we find humility revealed for all of us, the truth of humility, is at the beginning of our lives and birth and at the end of our lives and death. 
there is a great equaling out in both of those conditions that we all find ourselves in. Um, You guys need to know that the Bryants had their baby this week. Jordan and Colin had their baby, and his name is Bowen Smith Bryant. And he's healthy. Mom and Bowen are at home doing well. Last night at dinner, I was sitting at the table holding my seven-week-old niece, and I recognized that in a baby, we can see the truth of humility. What we see in a baby is utter dependence and neediness, right? And then utter potential as well. We all need to see that in ourselves and in one another. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are ruler of the universe. We acknowledge this morning our deep need for you and our need for one another. Would you grant us a clear view of reality, not a view that is skewed by our own importance or even our own responsibility, but give us a clear view of what is true. We watch the cross. We recognize who you are. And we wait this day for resurrection. Amen.